0: Hey
1: everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast from The Recount, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. August is traditionally supposed to be a slow month in the news cycle, sun-baked and snoozy, but this year, in keeping with the apocalyptic times in which we live, the headlines have been an unrelenting parade of death, destruction, and doom. Afghanistan, COVID, the Calder Fire in California, Kanye's final listening party for Donda, I mean, it just doesn't stop. But fear not, my friends, we are not going to add to your sense of dismay on this week's episode of Hell in High Water. Instead, we are featuring a human silver lining, an artist I discovered because of the chaos all around us, when in the depths of winter, I was searching the streaming services like so many of us have been doing during this pandemic, looking for something great to watch with my wife while we were in COVID lockdown. I had heard about this dude and his supposedly astonishing one-man show during its storied off-Broadway run a few years ago, And now, lo and behold, here it was, transformed into a Hulu special called In and of Itself. And oh yes, it was indeed astonishing, and mysterious, and deeply moving. So much so that even months later, I could not get the special or the questions it raised out of my head. So I resolved to get that artist to come on this podcast so I could ask him those questions. And here he is, Mr. Derek Delgadio.
0: The state of our union is turbulent, to say the least. A lot of people say we are living in two different Americas. I believe we are living in as many Americas as there are people in this country. And unless we find a way to find some common ground, we're in trouble.
1: Derek Delgadio is a 37-year-old magician, but calling him a magician is both a bit of an understatement and a kind of misdirection. Delgadio is not just any magician, he's a prodigy, especially with a deck of cards. His admirers in the world of illusion include such luminaries as Penn & Teller, David Blaine, and the legendary and now sadly deceased Ricky Jay, for whom Delgadio worked as an assistant for a time. He is also something more and something other than a magician, a conceptual and performance artist who uses narrative and other theatrical conventions and tropes, along with sleight of hand and other forms of magic, to explore complex ideas and themes, such as identity and loss, and provoke intense reactions from his audience, the members of which play an active part in his performances, and are essential to in and of itself. David Blaine has said of Delgadio, quote, the reason Derek's so incredible is that he's not trying to fool an audience. He's trying to capture an emotion that lies deep within them. And Delgadio himself has said of his work, quote, I want to do for magic what Duchamp did for art. Break it. I'm not going to say much more now about in and of itself, partly because Derek and I discuss it at length in today's episode, and partly because the show is very difficult to describe if you haven't seen it, which I encourage you to do right now. Turn on a TV, dial up Hulu, watch the show before listening to this conversation. Trust me, you will be glad that you did this. It's a great show, and it will help you understand what we're talking about a little bit better. What I will say at this point is that the special came about with the help of Frank Oz, the famous puppeteer behind The Muppets, the voice of Yoda in Star Wars, and the director of such films as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Little Shop of Horrors, and in and out who directed both the stage version of in and of itself and the film for Hulu. Another key figure behind the special is Stephen Colbert, who saw Delgado's show in its off-Broadway run and was so blown away that he agreed to executive produce it. In the months since In and of Itself debuted on Hulu, Delgado has published a book, a memoir entitled A Moral Man, or if you prefer, A Moral Man, that focuses on his childhood and the time he spent as a professional dealer and card mechanic, a cheat in other words, at a high-stakes poker game in LA. The book and what Delgado learned from his experiences on the dark side are another topic of our conversation, in particular how his insights about rigged games apply to our current political situation. The one thing we did not get to, unfortunately, is whether Delgadio has yet come up with a way to make Donald Trump truly disappear. But besides that omission, I think you'll agree that Derek Delgadio is a fascinating cat because the way that his art transcends mere magic is by getting to the place inside all of us that is engulfed in hell and high water.
0: How would you describe the show before I give my own opinion of it here? (sighs) It's uh, it's sort of a theatrical existential crisis, I guess. <laughs> in this show, magic and illusion are used as sort of a, a metaphor for identity and the things that we can and cannot see about each other. And I had the most extraordinary experience in this show. I'd, I'd never had this before,
1: is that I've been to shows that deeply moved me, mm-hmm. but I've never been to a show where at the end of it, I didn't want to move. I didn't even want to applaud because I was so captured by the last moments of this play that I felt like there was a thin layer of still
0: air all around my body that I didn't want to disrupt. Is that why you weren't applauding?
1: <laughs> so that's Stephen Colbert and Derek DelGaudio, our guest today on Helen High Water, back in November of 2017, partway through the theatrical run of In and of Ourself. Derek, it's good to see you. Thank you for being on the show.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: And I kind of wanted to start with that just because well, first of all, it gets at a thing that I've now watched a lot of video about, you trying to talk about this show. And I have to say, you and Steven obviously have a an ongoing discussion of huh. what this show is really about. And it seems like after all these years, you still haven't really, you guys have a running joke about your inability to really describe it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah, you, it's
0: <laughs> utter, utter failure, utter failure <laughs> by, by design. I mean, I set out to make a show that was difficult to describe and we were a victim of our own success.
1: <laughs> I think that's basically right. Just as a starting point, Obviously, you did 552 performances of it. Yeah, in New, York, in New York. In New York. And then you made the movie of it. Does it feel like to you, and it's still relatively recently in your rearview mirror, but do you feel like this is the kind of thing where this piece of work is going to be with you forever in the way that it feels like it's going to be with me forever?
0: Yeah, I mean, it changed me and it changed how I see the world and my life externally and internally. So yeah, it'll be with me for as long as I live, I believe.
1: So let's talk about that. I know you said it's still really impossible to describe, but to even begin to talk about what you just said requires some degree of explication. Of course. So why don't you say a little bit about how you now, having had all this practice to try to describe it for people who have both seen it and haven't, how you now talk about it so that you can unlock the discussion of how it changed you.
0: I was thinking about the nature of identity and what it means to be and be seen in this world and how self is related to others and how we create identity not just on our own, but between ourselves and other individuals. And it was a very personal endeavor. And then it turned out that it's an issue that everyone struggles with on some level. And so what began as a very personal journey quickly expanded and people saw what I was doing, what I was working on, and they kind of jumped in to help. and, And I was very fortunate to be surrounded by other great creative people and talented artists and makers who helped me bring it to life. It's kind of a modern allegory really.
1: For those who haven't seen it, one of the elements of it is that audience members walk in the door and choose a card that has an identifier for how they see themselves, whether they take that seriously or not. I mean, I think at one point you sort of indicate you want people who took it seriously versus people who didn't yeah. take it seriously to kind of distinguish between themselves. Cause there's obviously some split. Some people who look at that as picked a name, you know, I'm a seeker, I'm a joker, yeah. I'm a, I'm a midnight toker, whatever, mm-hmm. as a kind of a joke and others who are looking for something that was more earnest.
0: Yeah, I wanted to level the playing field. Most people went into that room either not knowing who I was or knowing only what they've read in the playbill, or maybe they heard about it on, you know, from a friend or something like that. But I knew I wanted to make it so that if they were going to start defining me before I even saw them, it was a two-way street. I wanted them to flatten themselves to being one thing so that we met on equal ground the first time we saw each other face to face. And so I wanted to start that dialogue before they even got into the room, get them in that headspace of thinking about who am I? Who do I think I am? How do I think others see me? How do I want to be seen? How do I want to be perceived in this world? And so that that was just a way to get them to start thinking about it before I ever said a word
1: what they mostly knew about you probably was you were a magician. That's what they thought, right? That's the label that they put on you. And you have kind of an uneasy relationship with that, which I'd love you to talk about because... Sure. It seems like that was a lot of the baggage that people were walking in the door with would have been, oh, Derek Delgadio, great magician, one of the world's great magicians.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was in essence a hurdle in terms of the perception of what they thought I was. I have a background in sleight of hand and illusions and deception and things like that. And so I knew that based on a label, something like magician they would have already decided things about me, about what they were about to see, just based on that simple label. One of those things was presuming that everything that I said was patter or not true or something just there to fill time or perhaps pull attention away from what I was actually trying to achieve. Kind of the opposite of what I was there for. I once asked a a New York Times reviewer, they kept using the word patter when describing a previous performance that I had done. And I'd spent a great deal of time working on the language in it. And I I asked them, why did you call this patter? And they said, well, it's the things you say between the things we're there to see. And so that was kind of a, a wake up call as to how difficult it was going to be to actually bridge that gap and get people to listen just based on who they think I am or what they think I do and their perception of the word magician. And so that was part of it, getting people to look past or try to get past that notion of what they believe a magician is so that they can actually hear what I'm there to say. And on the flip side of it, knowing that they wouldn't believe me, it gave me an advantage in a sense, because all I needed to do was tell the truth in most cases, knowing that they were going to lie to themselves based on what they thought I was. However, the public perception of it does make it difficult to sometimes have relevant, meaningful conversations based on their previous experience with either magicians or just their general knowledge of what it is to be a magician and magic in the modern day.
1: Both the television special and the stage performance were directed by Frank Oz, who people know obviously famous for a lot of things, but for a lot of people famous as being a, quote, puppeteer. And, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was interesting to think about the way, and you guys have both talked about this, obviously, it's not any great revelation, but that you both have this kind of uneasy relationship with the labels that people put on you. Yours, uneasy with the notion of being a magician. His, uneasy with the notion of being a puppeteer. And I, in one of these conversations with you and Colbert, Frank talked about how the magician thing worked, though, to your advantage. I want to play that right now. Let's listen to Frank Oz here talking about the nature of Derek's labeling as a magician and why it was actually helpful, even though it was problematic in another way.
0: And there is a positive, I think, uh, Stephen, about people thinking it was magic, because they come, they came to the theater thinking it was magic, and it turns out magic was the Trojan horse, because after 15 minutes, they're saying, whoa, wait a second, this is a lot more than I thought. And they forget about it, and they're moved for reasons they don't even know.
1: So that's Frank Oz talking about this. Can you talk a little bit, Derek, about your relationship with him, how he came to be involved in your work, how he ended up taking on this project, and what it was like to collaborate with him on the making of the stage performance and the film?
0: I knew I needed a director, and Frank was kind of the obvious choice. I had known Frank for a few years through a mutual friend, and he's the right person because when everyone thinks of Frank Oz, they think of something else. You know, some people think of the Muppets. Other people think of Yoda or, you know, little shop of horrors, Digger on scoundrels. What about Bob? I mean, everyone has a different idea of what that name means. And he did understand exactly what I was getting at. And this notion of transcending what we know about one another and being more than one thing and how labels tend to flatten us to being one thing, making it difficult for us to be other things. And, I didn't have to explain any of that to him. He just kind of knew it in his heart because he had himself had experienced these things throughout his life and was very aware of how it's affected other people. And so, yeah, he devoted all of his time and effort over the course of like five years to help shepherd this thing across the finish line with me. And I'm very grateful for him every day.
1: You did 552 performances in New York. How many in LA?
0: Two or 300.
1: You did this thing somewhere in the... 7.50, 7.50 7.50, yeah. 10, 7.50 a thousand times, right? Yeah, I'm going to try it to be a little bit more concrete about some things in the show without getting into too much detail. One of the benefits of doing this six months or seven months after the movie played on Hulu, I feel a little bit less like we have to keep secrets about some of the stuff in it, but I just wonder about, given that the emotional content of it, I mean, there's no doubt that part of why this thing became the cult favorite that it became, and people would walk out saying, you gotta see it. I can't really tell you about it. You have to see it. This is kind of a cliche about this show now, and about the Hulu special, right? Is that it has all this emotional quality to it. Evident emotion on the part of the audience, emotion on your part. And I just said that as a performer, given the deeply personal nature of a lot of it and the the whole topic that's at the center of it and seeing 150 people night after night go through this, you said before that it changed you. I'm just, I want to understand the arc of a piece like this, There are performers who perform things hundreds of times in a row, obviously, but this is a different kind of production. I'm curious, like what it was like over Mm. time and how the experience of it changed for you to do it every night, given the nature of it and how it evolved over the years that you were doing it. And it was really your life.
0: I mean, when I first started, uh, there were no stories about me in it. For me, it was a show of ideas and I wanted to keep it in the abstract and just explore the nature of identity through storytelling. But I quickly realized that you have to give them some sort of proxy for them to go on the journey with you. Otherwise, it's just like a moth podcast live. So like, I had (laughs) to find a way to go with them on the journey rather than have them hear about stories. And so using my own narrative was a way to do that. And I was very reluctant to do that at first because I didn't want it to be a one-man show like a traditional almost stereotypical one-man show of like growing up, this is what life was like. I I didn't want to do that. right? But because of the nature of how I was raised and the mother that I had and the kind of the unique circumstances and life that I had lived, it felt very relevant to the work and using myself as sort of a proxy for them to enter the work really seemed like the appropriate thing to do. So at first it was just Getting all of the material together and having it work. It was like riding a bicycle while building it. It was very difficult. Like, first time I had done a lot of those things was opening night for people that had paid to buy a ticket, which is not typically how you want to do anything for people for the first time. But uh, then it was just about getting the work in my bones and then understanding what it all meant to me. And then the last step was kind of understanding how that related to the world. And the more that I did the show, the more true it became. And it was actually had the kind of the opposite effect of what a lot of performances that are done over time have where the words are repetitive, repeated so many times, they lose all meaning and value to whomever speaking them. It's just, you've reduced them to noises that sound like words. And for me, I, I saw what it was doing to the audience and the effect it was having on people and felt the responsibility of the work more each day. And so it did get more potent, both for me and for the audience. And it didn't lose its power. It only strengthened over time, but it also became emotionally very draining for myself and everyone else around me and people in the audience, too.
1: I'm a little stunned by the notion that at the outset you thought that you could do this without having your autobiography be the kind of spine of it. I mean, I'm obviously not being critical, but I find that given how central it is to what you ultimately made, it's amazing to me that you ever started at a place where that was, you are going to try to pull off this thematic and substantive challenges without any reference to your own story.
0: I mean, I still wish I could have conversations without talking about myself just based on my nature. It's counter to kind of who I am in terms of putting myself out there and talking about myself. But that's how we interact with one another and with ideas is through storytelling. And we need to understand who the hero of that story is and what obstacles they face. And it's just a way that we catalog information in our heads and how we access parts of our hearts that we wouldn't otherwise access is through the human narrative. And so... As reluctant as I was to do that, it was very clear that it was the right thing to do. You know,
1: one of the things I said I wanted to try to talk a little more concretely about this. There's obviously there are a couple of things that people talk about, like in terms of how the audience reacts to what happens in this. You are telling these stories about yourself that begins with the story of the Relatista, and that is a you call it a metaphor. We call that a-
0: allegory. Yep. Allegory, right? Yeah, yeah. The guy I, I showed the guy who told me that the film. He sent me a very nice letter and. It was a beautiful moment.
1: This is a story of a guy that you met in Spain, I think.
0: I met a guy in Spain who told me a story about a man who played Russian roulette over and over again, defying the odds. And then after telling me this story, told me I needed to know this story because I was that man who played Russian roulette.
1: This was somebody you did not know who knew nothing about your... This is just a stranger who told you this story. It was a
0: friend of a friend who I just met at a bar.
1: I mean, the story isn't just about someone who defies the odds playing roulette, if I'm correct. It's a guy who defies the odds and continues to put more, more, more bullets, bullets into, into the chambers and continues to defy ever more death-defying odds as it goes along. And ultimately ends up dead, but not by his own hand. And this guy just met you and sort of on the basis of, do you know what, how he formed that view of you?
0: Well, I think that's why it stuck with me is because I didn't know. Right. I didn't know why. And I found it curious that he would make that assessment based on knowing very little about me, if anything. And the other part is I didn't know why he said it, but I also knew it was true.
1: Yes, that's, I mean, that's clearly what's so powerful about it. But as we sit here today, do you know why? Like you're obviously still in touch with the guy. Have you ever gone back to him and said, hey man, I'm sort of curious. It's an important part of my show. Why did you come up with that assessment?
0: No. I don't want to destroy whatever it is. Right. I, I don't need to know. He said it and I'm glad he did and I don't need to know why, but he did say in his last letter to me that I I no longer need to carry the burden of that title. So that was a very nice thing for him to say. Nice see. to be free yeah. of the uh, apparently
1: of uh, this guy who detected immediately suicidal ideation on your part having met you in like 3 minutes in a bar. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I mean, the dude sounds like someone who has either some significant mental illness or someone who has incredible powers of perception.
0: Yeah. could <laughs> be both. both. Could be both. Yeah.
1: And it hit you immediately? Like when he told you the story, you were like, this guy gets me. Was that evident to you in the moment or did it take a while for the truth of it to creep up on you?
0: The story not leaving me is what made me realize right. there was value in it. And then I just thought it was interesting that he had, said that. And also, you know, I was listening to him in Spanish, and I had misunderstood parts of the story. And part of that informs the other parts of the show and that the listener carries half of the story and the book element and that the listener ultimately gets to write the ending and it doesn't really matter how it ends if you tell it differently. And so all of these elements made it into the work, whether it was the literal story or misunderstanding and misinterpretations of it and all of these things of what it means to be told a story of who you are and what that does to you and then how that shapes who you are in the end.
1: So the Rulatista sticks with you. It's an important part. It's like it hovers literally. I mean, the the presence of the Rulatista is there for anybody who hasn't seen either this on stage or on screen yet. The Rulatista is a motif in the performance and sticks. I think, you know, for a lot of people, there's three other things I'd say, right? One is the brick. Another is the letter. And Mm -hmm. the third is the identification of every audience member. Those are three big things that have some element of trickery in them. Right? Sure. And each of them hits in an emotional way, I think, for people. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I mean, first talk a little bit about the brick and the, the element of that. It's a piece of magic, but it's connected to an important part of your story. And then it also takes on this other life because the brick then manifests itself out in the world or did when you were doing the show on stage yeah. here in New York. Talk a little bit about that and what function it serves in the story you're telling.
0: So I grew up with a gay mother in Colorado. And we had experienced some hostility and friction, to say the least, with the people around us. And that brick comes from a a story from my childhood and represents all of the hate and ignorance that we were surrounded by and experienced. And I did my best to take this object of hate from my childhood and turn it into using the skills that I have or have attained over the years, turn that into an object of hope and to transform that hate and fear into something hopeful. And that was the goal. And so I tell this story about my childhood and take that brick and then surround it with playing cards, which are a source of both love and frustration from my past. But I use these things that I have carried with me to make this object that they now know is an object of hate, to send it away and out into the world. And in doing so, transform its meaning and create a more hopeful object that people can look for in the world itself.
1: And the brick disappears on stage and then reappears,
0: right? At the time, it used to reappear in New York City. In New York City, yeah, on a a street corner of someone's choosing.
1: Right. And then the audience members after the show would go and find the brick, right? It must have been quite a thing for you in the age of social media to see how much of a phenomenon this became i mean was that completely organic or did you encourage people to go look for the brick
0: yeah it was totally organic i mean i never told them to go look for it or take pictures of it or anything i told them it was there but that leap that leap was what i was looking for that leap of faith between it being gone and them having the idea of maybe yeah. maybe it's really there maybe what he said is true and then going there and seeing it and having a communal experience with other people who experience the same thing. And the notion where I say that for other people, that's just a brick. Like anyone who hadn't seen this show or experienced yeah. these moments, it's just a brick on the street. And people walk by it and think nothing of it. But for anyone who's heard this story, they go there and they look. It has a very different meaning. and. That's true for everything, including one another of the stories Mm -hmm. we hear about each other is what transforms how we view that person. So what have you heard about someone? What are you saying about someone? And how are you defining their story? And so, yeah, I think people just had the idea and then it became symbolic of the rest of the show of, of what a thing is and how we describe it, how we see it.
1: To state the, the most obvious thing, I'll say all day, it must have been enormously gratifying to you for that. You obviously hope that people would make that leap of faith, but to see them making it night after night and going out and finding well, that it, it was. must be kind of amazingly gratifying for you as an artist.
0: It was, and you hit on like the most gratifying thing in the world for me is that like the fact that people not just go there, but that it's irrelevant. Just being there and seeing it is enough. It's an extra leap on their part and the fact that they're endowing it with the meaning. And that's what's so special about it is they're making it a magical object by being there and their presence makes it a magical object. And so for them to help basically finish what would have been an otherwise unfinished piece is just so rewarding and something that, you know, rarely do you see.
1: Yes, very rarely. Talk about the letter moment. I read the thing about whether it was Penn or Teller. I think it may have been Teller saying that there were two tricks in the performance that they couldn't figure out. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to talk about the trick itself, but as an emotional thing, it's the combination of the, the mystery of how you make it happen together with what the actual emotion in it along again with the, the last thing we'll talk about of the selection of the identities. But the letter I think hits people as hard as almost anything. In the movie version of it, it's incredibly powerful. So I'd love yeah. for you to talk about that.
0: So I was thinking about how non-visual transformation, just what you know about a thing can transform it. And then I started thinking about that in the context of people and how what we know about someone transforms them right before our very eyes. And I wanted to do that to someone on stage and allow us to witness it. And so the letter was the result of that, of wanting to see that transformation of of someone and watching them transform and watching them watch something transform and the kind of the chain reaction of those events.
1: And so each night you would select one person.
0: One person would be selected by another member of the audience. right? Sorry. And that yeah. person would then choose from a stack of envelopes that were sent to us. And on the back of each envelope was something that said like cousin or sister, uncle, friend, brother, a label like that. Right. They would choose one of these. And I'd say in a moment, you're going to open that up and whatever's in there, you're going to see this piece of paper transform into a letter to you from your cousin. And then when that happens, we get to watch you transform into something else. And so this happened every night, night after night. And we'd watch people open a letter and watch it transform into a letter from a loved one. And then we'd get to see it in turn them transform into to something else.
1: So this letter discussion may be a little hard to follow if you haven't seen the show. So everyone out there, I hereby give you permission to pause the podcast right now, go to Hulu and watch Derek's show if you haven't done that already. But the basic deal, Derek, is that when you were performing this on stage, every night you would bring up one audience member to help you with this illusion or perpetrate this illusion on. But in the film, we get to see a whole bunch of people intercut from many different performances, all of them experiencing this kind of mind-blowing, super emotional experience. And I can't emphasize it enough. I mean, like everyone on stage, when they the person who's up there doing this, everyone, by the end of it, they're either in tears or their jaws have dropped open or their eyes are popping out of their head, or they turn to you literally and say, what the fuck. Like, how did you do this? Right. Ah. So, you know, I'm wondering if out of all the, you know, 500 plus times, 600, I don't know how many times in total you did it between LA and New York. Out of all those times you did this trick, I'll call it. If there are any particular instances that stand out as like the most powerful.
0: There's one that remains kind of the, the, I don't say the best, but certainly that left the largest impact on me was very early on a man came on stage and chose a letter and it said father on it. I asked, like I asked everyone, do you have a father? And he said, no. And out of sheer morbid curiosity, I proceeded. And other times I've had, if someone wanted to exchange one and try a different one, I've done that. But this time he said no, and I was very surprised by this. And so I proceeded. And I even said, this is going to be very interesting <laughs> in a moment. And I, I went through with it in a moment. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to open that up and you're going to see it transform into a letter to you from your father. And when you see that happen, we're going to see something different. We're going to see you transform into something else. And then I stepped back and let him open it. And he read this thing and slowly started to cr- just tears started pouring down his face. And you could see he was going through something deep deep emotions coming up and he finished reading it and I asked him, like I asked everyone, Are you comfortable sharing this? I've had people say no and just that's fine, they can take it and but he said he said I am so he stood up and he he read this letter and it was a beautiful letter to him and talked about seeing you with your children makes me wish I was a better father and makes me want to be a better dad today and I'm so proud of you and proud of the man you've become and so proud to call you my son love Bob. And I'd say, who is Bob? And with tears rolling down his cheek, he said, Bob is my father-in-law. And then he looked at me and changed what he had just said to Bob is my father. And then he walked off stage. And so he, you know, he guy walked on stage knowing he didn't have a father and walked off stage with a father. And I mean, I was just like, can we shut it down right now? Just stop. I don't want to. No, none of us wanted to go on because it was just so beautiful and transcendent, transformative. There's something healing in that. Yeah. You know, I'd heard from the wife of that man a year after that happened. And he said, like, his life was transformed from that moment because it transformed how he saw his life and what family means and what it means to be be a son and to feel connected to the world in a way that he hadn't been connected before. And so that was definitely the peak of at least my understanding of what that moment was capable of doing.
1: So actually, this is a good place for us to take a break, I think, sure. because I want to step back, Derek, and talk about your transformation from you know a young novice magician to the performer that mm-hmm. commands the stage the way you do in and, of, in and of itself, including the mentors that you had along the way. And I was amazed to learn this, that you worked for a little while for the legendary, most you know, transformative figure in this world, Ricky Jay. Yes. Uh, so I want to talk about that. And I also want to discuss your book, A Moral Man, which also could be read as a moral man, uh, depending on how you read it and what your disposition is. The book explores your walk on the wild side as a professional card mechanic, which for those of us who don't know, mechanic sounds innocent, but it really means cheat. You were dealing hands of Texas Hold'em ripping off rich Hollywood assholes (laughs) at a high stakes poker game in LA. So uh, I want to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about both more of your artistry and your criminality on hell and high water. When we get back. And we're back from that little break on hell and high water. I want to start this off with a little sound I know you work for this guy on at least one show, someone who I was obsessed with, who I saw many times perform live. Thank God I had that opportunity. I didn't miss my chances to get to see Ricky Jay, but let's hear Ricky mm-hmm. Jay, and then we'll talk about the early days and the portrait of the artist as a young man when it comes to Derek Delgadi on Hell on High Water. Let's play Ricky Jay. People frequently talk about how much more difficult it is to cheat in a card game than to perform a good sleight of hand. But if you think about it, what makes magic different is that it's inherently Not honest. That's the major difference between deception as crime and deception as performance. In the performance of magic, in sleight of hand, you tell someone you're going to deceive them before you deceive them. That's really difficult, to tell someone you're going to fool them, to have them on guard and aware, and then to still fool them. It really is a very peculiar profession. A very peculiar profession from a very, I guess some would say peculiar, but also just an incredibly captivating man, Ricky J. Talk to me about Ricky J. You worked on at least one show with Ricky J, I I think. Someone, a hero of yours, someone you admired, someone who you emulated. Tell me about your view of him and, and what it was like to work with him.
0: I spent most of my youth chasing Ricky's coattails, to say the least, and worshipped at the altar of Ricky Jay, but he does not like people who do the same thing that he did. So he he was always reluctant to speak to other magicians or, or especially younger magicians who wanted to learn things. And he was very guarded. So it took a long time and a lot of doing the right thing and a lot of sitting outside the front door of the master studio for a week with no food, no water, that sort of thing. Like I had to earn my, earn my seat at whatever table he was sitting at. He was a real artist. Like the term sleight of hand artist is used to describe what people often do, but there are very few artists who do sleight of hand, and Ricky was definitely one of them and definitely the most influential for me growing up in terms of what can be done with sleight of hand and illusions and conjuring. He took it as far as we'd ever seen it go before, as far as culturally. He genuinely loved the art of magic and conjuring and the thing that it gave him the most love and pain, I think, of anything in his entire life.
1: I remember reading uh so you would have been a little kid, nineteen ninety three Mark Singer wrote this story in The New Yorker about Ricky Jay, which I know everybody's read this piece. But at the time, I wrote for The New Yorker for a little while in my life. And like in the annals of New Yorker stories, like when people at The New Yorker talk about like the greatest profiles that have ever run in the magazine, which is quite like a a fairly exalted status, right? People talk about this Mark Singer piece about Ricky Jay. And I remember reading it when it came out and it was the first, I'd never heard of Ricky Jay. I think I'd seen him maybe in a couple of David Mamet movies, but I remember reading the profile and being totally captivated by how interesting the guy was and I'm using him as a kind of an access point Ricky passed away a couple of years ago who's obviously a beloved figure and exalted figure and someone who kind of came to exemplify magic of a certain kind of sleight of hand not magic but sleight of hand at the kind of higher end of the higher yeah. arts of this right to people in the film community and the creative world Where did you come upon Ricky Jay? Was in the genesis of your interest in Mm -hmm. these topics, was that an early phase or were you already hooked by the time you found out about Ricky Jay and started to become obsessed in the way that you just described?
0: I mean, I saw Ricky's VHS of Ricky's 52 Assistants show, which had aired on HBO back in the day. I didn't have HBO, but a friend of mine did. and He recorded it on a VHS tape for me and I watched it when I was 13 years old and I hadn't even seen that much, but I knew that I was seeing someone who, who, this was as far as it has been or could go. I mean, it was so clear from his use of of language and not just his hands, which were great, but just everything was right. And everything was treated with the respect it deserved and with the care that it deserved. And you just watch someone who not only was a, a master of their craft, but who treated it with the dignity and respect that you rarely see. And that was what stood out to me as someone who Who wasn't just good at this but he cared about it so much he never allowed it to be in anything other than the best possible light because he felt it deserved it not him but this thing separate from him that he happened to know about and be a part of was worth sharing and it was worth sharing in the best possible light
1: eventually you broke through it was hard to break through hard to get to be in ricky's orbit given his predispositions what was the thing that finally cracked the shell or cracked the code?
0: Well, I had been in Ricky's orbit for years because, A, I was interested in a lot of the same things. And so obviously we would see each other in circles and he was always polite, but, you know, he's the kind of guy who makes an effort not to expand his circle. And then I knew that. And I also knew that he was very protective over his work. And I was always very respectful of that and never tried to force myself into his circle. And I happened to be separately very close with his partner. Ricky owned a company called Deceptive Practices, and they consulted on movies and plays and musicals and anything else that required some sort of illusion. And they'd hire Ricky J and his company, Deceptive Practices. And the other half of that was a guy named Michael Weber. And Michael Weber, who is arguably the greatest magic mind in the world, he and I became close. And I became friends with him when I was 14 or 15 years old. And he was kind of the opposite of Ricky. And I, I somehow earned a seat at Michael's table. And he was very generous with his time and information. And even though I was living in Colorado, I would speak to him on the phone and correspond with him and go out to LA and visit with him. And things like that but he refused to make the introduction yeah uh, very wisely actually it, it didn't make sense like just tell him I'm all right <laughs> tell him I'm okay please but he wouldn't do that he said it needed to happen organically or else it wouldn't work and he had worked with Ricky for so long 35 years and so he knew that he couldn't just force me into Ricky's life it had to happen organically and Michael was sort of the guy behind Ricky for everything for years and then Ricky did a show called Rogue's Gallery, and Michael was kind of stepping up his role into a kind of a larger role and overseeing a lot more of the production. And that meant they needed someone to fill Michael's shoes of being the guy who handles all of the secrets and all of the things that Ricky doesn't want to talk about or share with other people. And that usually falls on one other person, and that was generally Michael. Michael couldn't do it anymore because he had other responsibilities, and so they needed someone else. And Ricky said, who should we get? And Michael said, you're not going to like the answer. And knowing that it was, I was the obvious answer, but that meant I was, yeah, I know he's the guy, like Ricky knew I was the right answer, but by admitting that I was the right answer, kind of by default, letting me in, because there's no way to work with him in that capacity and not have it be the floodgates are open and I have access to him and his mind and his work in a way that otherwise I would never have access to This
1: is going to be probably painful for you to say, but you were the right answer just because you were like, at that point, you were the hot shit talent at that age. Is that like why you were obvious?
0: Yeah, technically, I was knowledgeable and capable in, in those regards, but I think really I cared more than anyone. I cared about Ricky before I knew Ricky. I cared about him as a person before he really let me in. And Michael knew that. And Ricky, Ricky suspected it, but because he had been hurt in the past or burned by people, was always so reluctant to let people in. right? And so it was really just about who do you trust? Who do you let in? Who do you let into your coterie? And that, that you have this ocean of secrets that you're protecting. Who do you let have access to the vault? And the reluctance on Ricky's part is he knew that I had performed, that I had been out there. And generally speaking, it would be preferred to have someone who's not someone who goes out and then maybe does their own show. Why? Again, a protective barrier is it's like a safety net to like well at least he's not going to go perform i could go do all this stuff right i mean it's fine if someone's helping you with these things and they don't have the technical ability right. or performative ability to go pull these things off but ricky know i could and that makes it really dicey because right. you know the last thing you want is someone take like if i was a different person maybe taking some of the things or all of the things that i learned while there and going on to to do other things which you know wasn't the case
1: that just begs an, an obvious question, right? I mean, mm. clearly Ricky Jay had notion of secrets to protect, right? Yeah. As, a magi- as a magician, right? Yeah. And you said he's protective of that. And that's why he didn't want to let people in. Is the implication of that, that once you were in, that you were like all the way in? I'm just like drawing the obvious inference here, which is to say, hey, if I'm going to let this guy in, he's now going to have access to all my secrets. Is that what it really was?
0: You need to be able to trust someone to that level. Like you can't walk on eggshells backstage when you have to be able to talk about things. You can't like have side conversations with your side conversations, you know, mm-hmm. like you need to just have one side conversation and exclude everyone else. But like this gets into the, the conversation of secrets and like, what does it mean to keep a secret and why keep a secret? And Ricky was one of the few magicians left on this planet, along with Michael who believes secrets matter. And that while they're not the thing that makes magic, they're an important element of maintaining Wonder and astonishment. And Michael, his partner, has always said, We don't keep secrets from people, we keep them for people, you know. And this idea of of carrying these secrets to maintain the wonder is really elemental. And because it is now harder than ever to keep secrets because of the way information is shared, a lot of people just give up. And I was in the generation of people who gave up, who just like, Well, you know, and then you just go to, Ah, secrets don't really matter. It's the performance that matters. And who cares if they can Google it later? And that's just not fundamentally how Ricky was raised or what he believed in. And I valued what he was trying to make. And in order to make what he was making, it's important to keep to be able to maintain the mystery and to maintain some level of secrecy just to keep the thing alive. Because if the art or the work that you're creating is dependent on concealing some information from you by revealing that information is the equivalent of burning the painting and so if we want to keep that work in the world the way it was intended to be experienced you need to maintain some level of mystery which means keeping a secret or two and ricky really believed that that was important and are you able to not able to like keep your mouth shut so i can keep my business it's just really Valuing what we do here and what we make, and the price you're going to pay to create a moment of astonishment for someone is keeping a piece of information from them. And as long as you're able to do that, they can hold on to that wonder. But as soon as you let that go, you've now deprived them from experiencing that mystery.
1: I started down the path of talking about Amoral Man, the book, and ended up talking about basically about Ricky J for a long time, which is great. Again, I could talk about Ricky J for hours. And I love this discussion of the core kind of catechism in some way of this practice of what this art science whatever this vocation is about it's not really your book is about something else entirely which i'd love to talk about for a second but i do find myself drawn into this discussion because these are the kinds of like it's like a priesthood right and i'm not just trying to imbue it with religious significance but there is a kind of priesthood there is an element of like this is the catechism these are the sacraments as it is the case in the priesthood there's this notion that over time these things would change and i don't know i just find it all it's like a fascinating uh, fascinating discussion
0: yeah i mean secrets are sacred Like really, it's you're talking about things that are sacred and it is spiritual in that sense. And that intention is everything. If I'm keeping secrets from you because it's my livelihood and I don't want you to do the thing that I do, that's one thing. But if you're genuinely trying to preserve something wondrous and the gift of that wonder outweighs whatever is being concealed from the viewer, the way that the mechanics of the projector and the movie theater are behind you and... In a room in the back because that's not what we're trying to show you we're trying to show you what's on the screen that's important to conceal the things that allow the work to be preserved is really really important and it's a philosophical belief more than a commercial thing
1: let's talk about the book you know it's the story of you taking all of your passion and your skills and going down and doing something different with them before we get to the in and of itself what you are now this is you as a card mechanic at high-end poker games in LA, on the less morally righteous side of the coin. Talk about like why you wrote the book and what, what it's about, not just the stories in it, but what the point of it was.
0: I guess fundamentally it's about the nature of reality and what we call truth and how we perceive truth and our relationship to truth and how that's created around us. And I thought of it while actually watching the Brett Kavanaugh hearing was the first time that I realized that there was a, a story that I should probably tell to help maybe put some of what we're seeing in the world today into some sort of context. And so I initially thought about trying to write a more politically-minded book, I guess, and something that was explicitly about politics, but I I didn't wanna write a political book at the same time. So though it was inspired by a moment in politics and our, the, the zeitgeist of what we were experiencing at that time, I felt like the nature of the conversation was actually larger than politics, too, because not everything is politics. And what I was trying to get at in the book is applicable to all aspects of, of life and our relationship to truth and how our existential freedom that is based on whatever truth we're living in.
1: So this is where I wanted to go with this conversation as it happens. But we need to take a quick break. So we're going to do that. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Donald Trump and the big lie and the very nature of truth and reality itself, which Derek's book, "A Moral Man," or the way I like to read it, "A Moral Man," that's what the book is all about. So let's take that break, and we'll dive into those juicy topics with Derek Delgadio here on Helen High Water. And we're back for the last part of Hell and High Water here with Derek DelGaudio. We just started after our long and fascinating and wonderful uh, Ricky J. digression. We started to talk about the book, A Moral Man by Derek DelGaudio. And then we, that took us into politics. And that's where I want to start now. But let's play a little bit of sound from, in and of itself, the Hulu special with Derek talking about the first time that he really encountered Sleight of Hand.
0: I'll never forget the first time I saw someone perform Sleight of Hand. I'd like to say it was love at first sight, but I fell in love with all the things I couldn't see and I had to learn. So I started with the very basics. How do you hold a deck of cards properly? And then I read it would take eight years to learn how to hold a deck of cards properly. Eight years. And Which grip are you gonna to learn to hold them in? Are you gonna learn the mechanics grip? Full grip, straddle grip, box grip, dealer grip. I couldn't decide. So I just learned them all.
1: So did it take you eight years to learn any of those grips?
0: Uh, still working on them. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, you know, the eight years comment was kind of a classic line from the guy who taught Ricky J. Magic, Divern. Vernon. He said, yeah. you know, it takes eight years to even learn how to hold a deck of cards. And so I did learn them all because I was a kid and didn't know any better.
1: That sound we played comes at a moment where you're learning sleight of hand. And there's the question of wolf versus dog are you a wolf or are you a dog right mm-hmm. and the dog is the the nice creature and the wolf is the threatening creature and really a moral man the book is really about your time on the wolf side right am i yeah i'm oversimplifying here but that is really what that is right when you're a card mechanic
0: yeah that is true it is that exploring that duality of the dog and wolf of a moral man a moral man those are the same exploration there it's just a deeper dive with the book
1: you said that the book is a way of expressing the question of like what the nature of truth is. Yeah. And the the book tells these stories of your time as a card mechanic at poker games at Texas Hold'em in LA as a crook basically, right? In a crooked mm. in running in a crooked card game. Let's talk about what that was and what that was like and then we can take that from what the lessons of it were and how there's broad applicability that I think has these genuine political and social implications and that are, that speak very directly to the moment we're living in right now.
0: Sure. So when I was in my mid twenties, I was struggling with, you know, I was in my mid twenties and that's the time when you're supposed to struggle and figure out what the hell you're going to do with your life. And I had these skills, but I didn't know what to do with them. And I never quite found my stride as a performer because at that time I didn't know I wasn't, that performing was a means to an end, but it wasn't, the work that I was actually after eventually going to do. It was just a part of it. But I was, for me, it was a one-to-one. You perform, you do these things and show people the things that you know how to do. But it didn't feel right for me. And so I was struggling with working as a performer and struggling to make ends meet. And a friend of mine was working as what's known as a bust out dealer. He was a card mechanic, a cheat hired by the house to cheat the players and make sure that nobody left with money. And he got in trouble and lost his ability to do that job. And to keep that job alive, he asked me to fill in for him, knowing that I was one of the few people he knew who technically knew the technical things required to move the cards around the table in the way that they needed to be moved around the table to help decide the narrative for the evening, if you will. And uh, even though I had no experience as a poker dealer, he knew that that was comparatively the easy part. And so he asked me if I would fill in for him, which created a bit of a a conundrum for me because this is something that I had always had fantasies of in a way of, I wonder if I would be capable of doing such a thing, but you you can never actually know until you do it. I assume that something similar might be like someone who trains for battle and fires guns at a target, but going to war is a very different matter. And you wonder what you would be like on the battlefield and could you handle yourself and take care of those around you and and complete the mission that's required of you or do you have what it takes? And I guess I had always kind of perversely wondered just in terms of, you know, reading the, the books that I had read and watching the movies I grew up watching, wondering if that was a possibility, but never actually thinking that I was going to do it and being told by the people who I'd learn from explicitly not to do it because their lives were not any better because of it. So I I had not really thought of that as being a real outlet for me. But then this came up and it became a very real opportunity and I had to make a choice and got to tell myself I was helping a friend at the time, which gave me even more, you know, psychological and rationale for doing it. So I did it. I worked as a bust out dealer for about six months and posed as a professional dealer wearing a bow tie and a white shirt and name tag and pretending that I worked for a company that outsources dealers the way you'd hire dealers at a party and worked with other dealers who were professional dealers who worked at the casino every other night that week. And what I experienced at that table and saw was eye-opening and kind of gave me a glimpse into not just that underworld, if you will, but human interaction and life itself and how we perform life and how life can be a series of interactions that may not be what we think they are, even though we are living them as if they're, they're real.
1: And I think that you had a particular experience having performed your role very successfully, taken a lot of money from one particular person who ended Mm -hmm. up, who ends up broke Mm -hmm. and wants to tip out, tip you out, has no chips left, ends up handing a $5 bill to you, uh, to tip the dealer, the dealer who has just ripped him off. Yeah. That was a kind of epiphany moment for you about, yeah. about the nature of that reality that you had constructed in which this person thought they were living in a reality that was like on the level. But in fact, the whole thing was a simulacrum that was yeah. designed to fleece him. And that had a whole bunch of implications, moral implications and other implications that you kind of had to grapple with.
0: Yeah, it instantly introduced the humanity or or. I instantly became aware of the lack of humanity and what was actually transpiring in that room. And that I was a part of not that I was ignorant to it completely. Obviously, you know, these things are wrong, but you have the ability to, um, to just, I mean, they weren't very good people. You know, many of them were criminals. I watched them cheat on their wives and, do lots of drugs, and it was a house of debauchery, more or less. Yeah, so, yeah. it's easy to justify your actions in a place like that and sure convince yourself that you are not the villain of that story. But at the end of the day, there's still humans who are, you know, as far as they knew, playing poker, which is the most legal thing they were doing in that house, I guess. So, like, they were not the villains in that situation, and it became very clear that I was villainizing them to support my own justifications for doing these things. And when the humanity became clear to me of like the real, OK, you you've done your time. You've seen if you can do it. You've helped a friend and any other reason to do this is unjustifiable. So, yeah, I, I had to extract myself from that situation.
1: It leads in two directions, right? One direction is kind of a direction we've already been down in some sense. You know, the book is in some ways the prequel to in and of itself. And in some ways, the experiences that you recount in the book are the experiences that serve as the kind of jumping off point for what ultimately is the direction that you pursue that leads ultimately to in and of itself. That's one avenue. Yeah. And then there's this other avenue, which is the avenue that you raised before the break it gets summarized. You mentioned the Kavanaugh thing. So I'm going to, I'll read the tweet that you sent out at the time, which got, you know, people noticed. I remember, you know, covering this myself and I remember seeing this tweet, not really knowing that much about who you were, knowing a little bit, but seeing this yeah. thing that said this August, 2018, the tweet was, I used to rig card games for a living. I'd watch people sit down and lose everything again and again, but they didn't lose because they played by the rules and we didn't. They lost because it wasn't a game. It just looked like one. Democrats think it's a game. And that that's all you really said. You didn't yeah. really go into much more detail about that. Later, I've seen you commenting on the fact, the notion that, well, I'll let you talk mm-hmm. about it. What does it mean when you say this wasn't really a game? It just looks like a game. Democrats think it's a game. What is it if it's not a game? And what is the mistake the Democrats in that moment that you saw that you're kind of trying to pinpoint the Democrats were making? What are the implications of that?
0: Well, when I was sitting at the card table and we were essentially the entire thing is a simulation of a poker game. I mean, really, when the end has been decided. It's not much of a game. We're just going to go through all of the actions of a game, including the rules and procedures, just to allow the other side, the people being fleeced, to believe that they're still participating in a fair process. And democracy in many ways seems to reflect that in that it's very difficult to tell when it's actually a game where both sides are fighting for something and there's, it's fair and balanced in a way that's, you know, uh, somewhat level ground and then then there are times where it's just clear that one side is abiding by the rules and the other is not and the disparity is so great and it's so impossible to ignore I just can't see how that's not part of a larger discussion in terms of what's actually taking place when you watch the Merrick Garland and Kavanaugh and, right. and, and any other list of things that you could you, know, you could probably go through a hundred of them but like it's baffling. It's the equivalent of like, if we told everyone at the table, they're being fleeced and then everyone comes back and plays again. It's maddening. Like, I don't understand how it's even possible, but that's that's where we are.
1: One way to think about this is one way to verbalize it at least is to say that it's very common for people to say, Republicans are better at playing this game than Democrats are Democrats suck at playing this game that's the kind of thing yeah, that yeah, when, yeah. when Mitch McConnell doesn't give Merrick Garland a hearing and then rams through the Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court uh-huh. with Ruth Bader Ginsburg guys you know everybody says well the Republicans are great at playing this game they play hardball Democrats are bad at playing this game they they don't understand how to play the game and you're kind of making the point which is like it's not really that Republicans play the game better than Democrats play the game it's that there really isn't a game that's being played here and in fact yeah. Republicans are better at running the simulation yeah. of a game than, than Democrats are and Democrats keep falling into the trap of thinking it actually is a game. Yeah, and perf- with rules.
0: Yeah, and thinking that if we perform the actions of what appears to be a game to signal that to the people watching, then it appears as if it's it's on the up and up. But really it's just robbing a bank and they're just doing what they want, but they're going through general motions that like the equivalent of us anting at the table, you know, right. and going through the betting procedure. Now we're just doing that because we need you to think that you lost fairly so that we can get what we want at the end of the day. But these arbitrary rules that we're still governing ourselves by, they're not rules. And even if they are rules, we made them up. And there's some relationship between truth and morality that we're not discussing and having a higher discussion about truth and its subjectivity. The subjectivity of truth is the crisis of our time. I believe that because we can't even begin to fix the climate or this pandemic and clearly that is the hurdle that prevents us from overcoming any of these obstacles that we're facing that comes first of a discussion of what is true and how do we sway the narrative to to better humanity the democrats if anything are just terrible at swaying the narrative you know they think that explaining things with facts is going to help when really the republicans can just get one good buzzword and you know and and can change the narrative in a day. And that's actually a skill set that they have that I think is dismissed. It's dismissed by Democrats that, said that you know, words have power, you know, abracadabra, is I say, therefore I create, you know, and that, that they're doing that. They're changing the world around us based on the language that they're choosing to use. And it has nothing to do with reality. And I feel like until we figure out a way of acknowledging that and talking about it in a meaningful way, we're going to be stuck.
1: In the middle of the election season, you wrote this thing, the subjectivity of truth is the crisis of our time. I don't even know that I saw that tweet in real time, but I think about it now, you know, in and of itself came out, the movie came out on January 22nd, right? Two days after Joe Biden was inaugurated. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember Colbert in some later thing. Stephen, who ended up being an executive producer of the movie. We played at the beginning. Saw you on stage, loved it. Became a backer, became an executive producer. Helped this thing become. Mm-hmm. Uh, helped the Hulu special get made. Is a huge booster of yours. You have a lot of, of very helpful people who've seen your work and have been moved by it and have tried to help you. Steven's a very large advocate, right? And when he in one of the later interviews, you know, he said something about how the movie was very much of this moment, mm. and it struck me because it was of this moment for me in the sense that it's a product of the pandemic a thing that people very much saw in the moment when people were still locked in. It was towards the end of that period. But January of 2021, a lot of people at home watching a lot of streaming services looking for high quality stuff. This thing had that moment. It happened a couple of days after Joe Biden was was inaugurated. So therefore, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks after the insurrection at the Capitol, while the big lie was yeah. in, in what it turns out to be its early phases this propagation of a giant conspiracy theory that's warped our politics and continues to warp our politics and our country in this profound way. There are a lot of ways in which in and of itself was of this moment. I feel like it was like of this moment, it was of this moment in the context of the pandemic. It was of this moment, in the context of our politics. The timing of it was very like squarely in the middle of a lot of stuff that's pretty ropey and that we're still trying to get our arms around. And it's why then when I saw the tweet of yours, the subjectivity of truth is the crisis of our time, I'm like, you said that last July, and hmm. it's only about 100 times more true now than it was then. Yeah. So it made me reflect on and made me want to ask you about when you hear Stephen say that your piece, that in and of itself, is a very much of this moment. What does that mean to you? When you hear that, you think, yeah, it really is of this moment. In what <laughs> ways? Is that resonant for you when you hear him say that?
0: Yes, only because I was there for the performances and I, it might come from a different place when Steven says it because as an observer as an intelligent person who's very savvy when it comes to to these things but I I experienced it in real time and that the show was different when I started than where it ended up and you know I, I started it in 2015 before the election or mm-hmm. that's when I started writing it and then 2016 came and I started doing it and so I was doing the show when the election came around and then after the election moved to to new york and started doing it in new york and again experienced it in different ways and how people came to the work varied depending on what was going on in the world and the real moment that it became very clear was after charlottesville where hmm. the people started what they chose at the wall when they first walked in changed like the next day huh. like and there was no more unicorn there was no more space cowboy it was people for whatever reason, realize that what we call ourselves and what we call each other matters, really, really matters. And how we choose to identify ourselves and and put labels on one another is life or death. It's not just, oh, I don't want to be called that. It's what we call each other has absolute consequences. And that just became clear in the relation with the world and you know, i had a small sample of, of people yeah. every night that i got to interact with and this concept of what we call ourselves and how we choose to divide ourselves is everything and how we identify and what we identify with and with whom we identify is everything and it's how we are shaping this country and it's how we shape our circles and so maybe that's that, that's what he was referring to is that like unless we find a way to look beyond these labels and these words that we've chosen to categorize ourselves, we might be fucked.
1: Yeah. I mean, he says that in and of itself is a reminder that we can all be a better community, a better country, a better humanity if we just see each other. And I do think, you know, as I hear you talk about it, it's kind of obvious in some ways that given the way our politics have been in the course of the last four years, that would seep into your Mm-hmm. That would it would seep into the experience of doing this particular show because the show is so much about identity and identity is is so it's been so much up for grabs in the period this four years though like who are we what well, is America now what yeah. you know, Trump Trump through all of that made those questions central in a way that they hadn't been foregrounded in quite the same way and amped the stakes up in a pretty profound way the fact that you said the thing about how PLI more seriously, they took the act of choosing and identifying label mm-hmm. for themselves makes sense to me. I did not realize it was true, but obviously in some ways it's like, oh, of course that's true. Well,
0: of yeah. And, you know, you've been covering politics for long enough where you've seen the the meaning of the words Democrat and Republican change, you know, from time to time, what that actually means and yeah. what progressive actually means definitely shifts and changes and what, what conservative means changes. But like we have never seen such a stark, I think, an immediate change of these titles where it happens before our eyes, where what it meant to be a Republican with George W. Bush and how I or others felt about that word then versus now. I mean, we are seeing how quickly and how powerfully we can transform the meaning of a thing. And by changing the meaning of a label, we change the meaning of an entire community and how we perceive that community, not just the individual, but what it means for that entire group. Now, when someone identifies as a Republican, it says a lot more than it did to me several years ago. And it's really, really tragic because I've talked to real Republicans. I talked to Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who was chief of staff for Colin Powell, and he was a real Republican and like a good human being, like a person who, you know, when the idea was just small government, you know, we just don't want to big military, don't want government in our business. Okay. Like that's fine. But all of these other things that have now been attached to what that means, it's just so clear that we are, we're losing sight of the power of language and the power of words and how we can transform those words and those meanings, or at least not acknowledging the power of language. And I watched it happen when we were dismissing Trump early on and you watch his use of language you know, just picking simple phrases and repeating them, I mean, it's not just the tactic used by fascists. It's how you start a religion. You know, it's how a shaman might do a ritual. Like it's the power of language and kind of a mass hypnosis that does work. And you can't just write it off as, you know, he's got a small vocabulary. That's true, but it doesn't mean that the tactics aren't extremely effective in this, political and cultural warfare that we're experiencing.
1: A hundred percent. And we could, again, go down a whole bunch of different paths here. One of which is, you know, I think about those identifiers on that wall and people walking in and choosing something. Part of what in and of itself is about is the complexity of identity and about your identity, never being able to be reduced to a single thing. That's, part of the message of the work and yet you make an explicit move to make people choose one word there's a paradoxical element to that yeah especially at the end of the show where you go through and name people according to what they've chosen and i i'm fi- fixating on it because it's like one of the things you got you had on the wall was racist mm-hmm. right? and as i think about like i don't know if anybody ever picked that word in the course of 552 performances in new york
0: happened twice
1: happened that twice. will happen
0: twice where they stood up and wanted to be called that. One time was someone being very woke and recognizing their own race. It was a right. liberal guy doing his best to own his place in the world. But the yeah. other one was legit. It was after Charlottesville. He was there to make a statement and he was wearing the uniform, khakis, white shirt, red tie. It was full out there to own that in front of those people and to declare that, that he's there and if he's there... Others will also be there. And so it was chilling, to say the least. Right.
1: Oh, my God. I can't imagine it wouldn't have been. The reason I was thinking about it was in the context of like what it would be. I don't know if you had Republican on we the did, wall, yeah. But, but that's another thing where just the meaning of that from the beginning of the, as you were saying, obviously in the world, the meaning of the word changed. But. In the context of the show, it would be a very different kind of statement for someone to to grab that thing back in 2015 versus 2017 versus 2019 versus today. What you would be identifying by grabbing that that little
0: tag. Completely. And we had Republicans come and represent and it got audible reactions, which is unusual, you know, and like murmurs from other people when because because right. it's declarative like you're saying i have all of these labels in the world that i could choose from this is the one that i not only chose for myself but i'm going to stand up in front of other people and say yes if you're going to only call me one thing this is the one thing i want you to call me right. that's a pretty pretty amazing gesture on their part and like in new york city at a th-
1: it's like a equivalent to give yeah, the middle finger to completely the crowd, you know?
0: but then there was one night where a black guy chose republican and stood And it just points to the complexities of like, we're going to have to grapple with these things and it's not going to be easy. And that's another thing is like, one of the joys of that experience in that moment is the moment before I say something, when you're wondering yourself, how does this person see themselves? And when a black guy chose Republican, no one saw that answer coming. So when I say it and he confirms it, it's a reckoning for all of us. And that is... One of the many reckonings that this country is going through right now, where we are, we are having revealed to us in real time, daily, these contradictions and paradoxes and entanglements that we've created for ourselves, and that we cannot just demand that people separate themselves from their beliefs and who they are and their value systems. We have to find ways of existing together and coexisting with those beliefs. But the least we can do is decide on what it means to tell the truth. Absolutely. We must. We must decide what it means
1: to tell the truth. And then once we've decided what it means to tell the truth, we have to, you know, like actually tell the truth. (laughs) Though I got to say, given everything going on right now, I don't see that moment arriving anytime soon. Um, Derek Audio, it has been a perfect pleasure to have you here. everything that I was hoping for from this conversation and more on How and High Water. I have said it before, but I'll say it again because God knows I love to hear myself talk even if I happen to be repeating myself, but this isn't a good cause. So if you haven't seen in and of itself on Hulu yet, like what the fuck is wrong with you at this point? What are you doing? Like go to your TV, watch it right now and then go to your computer and there are a bunch of these online bookstores that I've heard of. One of them has something to do with the river in South America. I don't know. Anyway, you can buy his book, A Moral Man, or my preferred reading, A Moral Man by Derek Delgadio. Both of them, the Hulu special and the book will blow your mind. And uh, Derek, once again, Super grateful. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, John. Hell in High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Derek DelGaudio for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Alia Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Jessica Williams checks the facts. Margot Gray is our brand new assistant producer. Stephanie Stendender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro, Russell, is our executive producer.